the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In this episode, I'll be talking to events promoter Shane Dunn about the lack of a roadmap from the government for the return of live gigs and music festivals. You'll hear his frustration at not being able to host outdoor gigs while large crowds are being allowed back into Croke Park. He feels the government has abandoned the sector that gives employment to 30,000 people. In the second half of the show, I'll be looking at the reasons behind the huge spike in trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic in the first six months of this year. Stephen Kelly, CEO of Manufacturing Northern Ireland, will join me for that segment. But first to the events sector, which remains under lockdown restrictions, even though most of the rest of the economy is open. This in spite of 50 meetings between the government and the sector to discuss a potential roadmap for reopening. Promoter Shane Dunn is behind the Independence Music Festival in Cork and he's also worked with MCD and he joins me now on the line to discuss the many issues currently facing his sector. Now, Shane Dunn, thank you for joining Inside Business. You might just tell us uh, a little bit about uh, the backdrop um, for you as a festival organiser, if you like, during COVID. What was the last event that you actually staged? The last event I worked on was actually the Gavin James Pilot in uh, in Kilmainham, um, which, you know, we we did... I suppose, a, a tiny bit reluctantly initially, but, you know, we did it because we thought it was going to be maybe a stepping stone to, you know, to the next step and to, to getting us back to commercially viable events and back to, you know, an, an industry that could fend for itself like it always has done. Um, unfortunately, it seems to be something we've seen a lot of from the Department of Culture over the last 12 months, which was just kind of another photo opportunity, you know, another press release, another big announcement, and then nothing to follow it up. So... That was the last gig I, I, wor- I worked on. Um, my last gig, my last outdoor that I actually ran or that I, I, I worked on was also in Kilmainham, weirdly enough, but it was Love Sensation in August of 2019. So that's the last time that, um, you know, I've done a what I do, which is mainly outdoors, you know, um, bigger shows. Um, I did, did some indoors after that, but that was the last kind of multi-thousand cap festival I did. And Shane... What have you been doing since then? How have you occupied your time? How have you survived financially? Um, look, I've survived financially. I've had my, my, my income has been cut by about 70 odd percent, you know, over the last over 2020 and 2021. Um, I suppose, look, fortunately for me, I'd had a very successful business prior to that. I'd been a little bit frugal. I'd put some money away. I've been using the savings and, you know, still have, you know, some work with MCD and things that, that, that kept me going. Um, I'm not in, in the worst shape at all, considering where a lot of people in our sector are. Um, you know, fortunate that my business really was just me. You know, I don't have a warehouse full of, you know, two or three million euros worth of kit, you know, screens, audio equipment, you know, and right down to the stuff people don't think about, fencing and t- tank track and, you know, toilets and, you know, power generators, all those things that the people who supplied this industry and supplied the outdoor season in particular, um, you know, they were the ones really that were caught adrift by this government. You know, they were ineligible for CRSS because they didn't have a public-facing business. You know, they were they, they didn't get restart grants. They were they were really left with, you know, wage subsidy. That was it. Um, you know, and if you have a 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand a month loan to the bank, you know, for the two million quids worth of kits sitting in a warehouse, you know, wage subsidy every month is not really going to cut it. And a lot of them got three months, six months breaks. And then September, October of last year, um, the banks came a knocking and a lot of them were able to maybe kick it to this summer. You know, we'll be back next summer, you know, and we'll, we'll be really busy. And, and now this summer has been, you know, 
has been wiped out completely again. And, and I think partly due to, to, to delays and inaction, you know, from Catherine Martin's department, you know, I think the Green Party seemed to be able to get a bike lane put in overnight, but she doesn't seem to be able to get our industry back up and running with any kind of speed that we, we need, you know. And it's an industry that needs time to plan. You know, I think a, a pub or a restaurant, um, you know, while difficult, you know, can be told on a Monday that you're opening next Monday. You know, they can get it together. You know, you can't tell an industry, you know, that builds small towns, you know, that builds towns for 25, 40, 50, even 5,000 people um, and sells those tickets to, to those events. You can't give them a week's notice. You know, they need they need a lead time. They need 8, 10, 12, you know, 13 weeks even for an event license. So, you know, holding a meeting, you know, now <clears throat> at the end of August to talk about a, a reopening plan when the department have had it since July of 2020, you know, it's all a bit optics and, you know, delay tactics. And I think there's no doubt now at this point that, you know, we're going to lose a second summer in a row. More businesses are going to fail. Um, more skilled people are going to leave as they have done, you know, to other industries, but also plenty of them gone to the UK, to Australia, to, you know, places like Dubai even. Um, so, yeah, sorry. I waffled on there for a little bit. Oh, it's OK, Shane. I can understand your frustration. And I suppose Electric Picnic, a very high profile festival, uh, Leash County Council recently turned down in terms of permission to host this year and huge disappointment about that. But yet up the road in Belfast, and we've had uh, a few concerts with uh, crowds of 5,000 upwards at them. And I think you were at one of them where, where Tom Jones was playing. You know, it was great to see an 81-year-old man get up on stage and uh, crack it out for the best part of an hour and a half in, in front of 5,000 people. And look, the, the, the mitigation measures were in place in Belfast. You know, you had to be fully vaccinated 14 days in advance or show a negative test. And it was quite simple, you know, like it's an industry that, that does this kind of thing all the time. You know what I mean? We have digital tickets. We can digitally contact trace. We can put measures in place for, you know, checking of vaccine passports or vaccine certs. And like, I think the strange thing about Electric Picnic was that, you know, Leash County Council made a decision four or five weeks before they had to. They made it quite early. I think considering we're going to be in a scenario here where most likely 90% of the population over the age of 12 or 13 will be fully vaccinated by the middle of September. You know, I think the question from our industry really is, you know, well, you, you told us about these, about the vaccines. You told us about a vaccine bonus. You know, you said everybody gets vaccinated, things will return to normal. Well, 90% of the, we have a, Paul Reed keeps telling us that we have a, the envy of the world, you know, in a, in a vaccine program, in a vaccine rollout. But, well, what, at what level do we get to go back to work? You know, at what level can our businesses go back to work, come off PUP, you know, which is very strange at the moment on PUP is that it's now being cut for people in our industry. So we're being told you can't go back to work, but their PUP is being cut in a couple of weeks' time. So, um, yeah, picnic was a strange one. Strange that the decision was left to Leash County Council. You would have thought maybe, you know, an event of that size and obviously what the ramifications were going to be publicly with the media that the government would have at least had some involvement in it, you know, even to say, look, give it a couple of weeks, you know, let's see how the rollout continues, let's see how numbers are. You know, they didn't have to give a decision until four weeks prior, which, you know, would still be another two weeks from now even, you know, so they've they, they made the decision really early, a lot earlier than they had to. Um, so yeah, a strange one. And it really was a kind of a, a last light in the distance for a lot of people in our industry, you know, a lot of businesses... Um, you know, I think the staff call for the picnic is about three, three and a half thousand people. Um, but a lot of the suppliers more so, you know, your SMEs, again, mentioned already, people who supply stage, sound, lights, power. You know, it's such a big event. 
um, you know, a lot of them would have got enough work out of the picnic to maybe tide them over the winter. Um, and it's very disappointing for them that it's not going to happen. Yeah, sure. Now, I mean, to be fair to the council, maybe the decision really shouldn't have been put on their plate. Uh, maybe a decision at national level needed to be made to give this uh, the green light. But when you look at, let's say, the All-Ireland um, Championships and the fact that up to 40,000 people are going to be allowed into Croke Park for the finals, for the hurling and for the football. And some people might ask, I know it's a different scenario, people in a football stadium as opposed to people uh, outside uh, in a field watching a music concert. But when you see 40,000 people being allowed into Croke Park um, for hurling or for football, why can't we have live music events held outdoors? Yeah, look, I don't know. And like I suppose the only answer I can give you is that certain industries and certain entities and sporting bodies have been given preferential treatment over us. Like, that's a fact. You can't argue it. Like, they're not the same, but they're not that different. And you think anybody in, you know, I'm from Cork and, you know, I'd love to be in Croke Park on the 22nd to watch Cork beat Limerick. A lot of my friends will be there. A lot of my friends were at Cork and Kilkenny a couple of weeks ago. And while there was only 24,000 in the stadium, you know, you go to the pubs around Ballybock Road or around Drumcondra prior to the game. And a lot of them sent me pictures and videos going, you're closed, but look at this, you know. So like, I saw Robert Troy on primetime and said he was at the, the Leinster final and, oh, it's designated seating, it's this, it's that. There's no designated seating on the hill last weekend, you know, for, the, for, for Dublin and Mayo. Um, the, like to give you a even, I suppose, a two, two examples. Um, there was a play in the Gaiety two weeks ago, 50 people allowed in. If you came in 1,200-seater uh, theatre, if you walked out the front door and across the street and into the pub under Stephen's Green Shopping Centre, which is indoors and underground, um, you know, there was 200 people in there, in a pub. Like, how is that, how is, it, how is a venue like the Gaiety that's five times the size of that pub capped at 50 people for a play and there's 200 people allowed into a pub, you know, across the road. Like the Stunning are playing Pierce Stadium in Galway in a couple of weeks' time, which is a 34,000 capacity stadium, and they're limited to 500 people. Now, it's an LPSS, uh, government-supported um, gig, which a lot of us got those grants, but they're four or five days' work, and they have to be done by the end of September. You know, and what do we do then? Um, so, like... They're not the same, but they're not that different. And there isn't the difference between 500 and 40,000. They're definitely not that different. Like there is no reason that our industry couldn't be doing 5,000, 10,000 cap outdoor shows in September with vaccination passports, with full mitigation, you know, with everything that, that's required. And they'd be commercially viable and people could go back to work. But, you know, we said it to government in May, June, you need to put a plan in place now. You can't wait till August. By August, it'll be all about the schools going back, you know, universities going back, and you will kick us up the street. And by the time you get back to us, the summer will be lost um, and we'll, be, we'll have lost two years. And that's what's happened. And we told them it would, and they said it wouldn't, and yet here we are. So what next, uh, Shane? I mean, you know, if another summer is gone, when do you think you might be able to put on another show, another event, another festival? Um, and how do you survive in the meantime? Sure, like it's, it's very difficult. Like we said already, lots of businesses have gone. Um, and the worrying thing about a lot of the businesses that have gone is that their kit, their, you know, their, their equipment has been bought out of Ireland. So it's gone to the UK, it's gone to Australia, it's gone to the Middle East. So like, it'd be very difficult to come back. I think even when we do, you know, if it is next April or May before we come back to work, um, outdoors now I'm talking about, like it might be very difficult to get, just to get kit, to produce events because... You know, what, what the legacy of this 
of Catherine Martin will be here with this, with our with our sector in particular, is decimation. Like what will be left by the time we get to next April or May, you know, it could be very, very difficult to come back. What we need now for the other side of the sector, for the theatres, you know, for a Vicar Street or a Whelan's or an Olympia or, you know, whoever, is a plan for, you know, for reopening at capacity because it's a capacity business. And again, we've explained this to them, but it won't function at 50, 60%. It just can't. Um, it's too expensive to do it. Insurance levels are too high. That's another thing coming down the line off the back of this is insurance, but that's a lot. Of, but that might be a podcast all on all on its uh, all on its own. Um, so yeah, we need a plan really, and we need it now so that we can get open sooner rather than later. And I'd just be very concerned about this meeting this week with Catherine Martin. It's I don't know, it's the fiftieth meeting maybe between the department and and the sector. It's been going on since you know. Um, July, August of last year, there's no real need for another meeting. They have everything. They've had plans from our sector since last July for how to open outdoors, you know, at different levels of capacity. They've had uh, the same for indoors from all of the bigger promoters, all of the venue operators. Groups like Epic wrote, wrote plans last July, August for Falch Ireland and for the Department of Culture. They have everything. Like there's this meeting is purely delay tactics, optics. It's again, it's so the minister can say, I've just met the stakeholders. You know, I've met them and we're putting a plan together. Well, where's the plan? You know, we need it now. We need lead time. We need to start planning. We need to get open. It looks like it won't be outdoors at this stage, but we need to be open indoors so that artists can play and so that people can go back to work. Shane, what are you telling the artists who are slated to have shows in the next, let's say, six or nine months? Because if you if you open the ticket, let's say, in the Irish Times, or you open your weekend newspapers, you'll see a whole raft of shows that have been rearranged um, and uh, given different dates, uh, and some of them are still for sale, etc. So what are, you, what are you saying to those artists? Some of whom, you know, are outside the country. Some of them are, you know, British artists, let's say, coming here to do gigs. Yeah, it's very hard. Like, we've had shows that have been rescheduled seven, eight, nine times, and then cancelled, you know, Um the, the bigger problem, like there was two issues, two sides to it, I guess. One is the ones that are, are on sale already and being rescheduled. You know, some of those, it's just constant discussion. You're talking to them every week. We do find as well here that like, because a lot of the agents in particular who look after these acts are, are in the UK and they're so far ahead of where we are and with reopening, what's happening is they're just dropping their Irish shows. And that'll be something that'll come, that will, will have a knock-on, you know, detrimental effect that, you know, these acts can go and play... Stoke or Ipswich, you know, instead of Dublin. Um, and that's something we've always had to battle with. And I think it's going to be worse now off the back of this because we're so far behind them. Um, the Irish acts that are looking to put shows on, that have shows on sale, like because we don't have a roadmap, and I think Brezzy made a great point last week on a, an interview on the radio that he's his podcast tour going out in October and November. Um, and he's only been able to sell the tickets to the current guidance. So like, He's had to stop at 50 people or 100, you know, indoors. Um, and it's a disaster. Like, like the, you know, he needs to sell probably 80, 85% of the tickets on every show just to break even. So like, you know, on the capacity. So like to only be able to sell to maybe 5% and then wait and see what gets said. We have a bunch of bigger Irish acts all looking to tour in November and December. <clears throat> and everybody's waiting for this kind of, you know, ill-fated roadmap like it's like all of these shows that have been rescheduled a number of times they're all going to end up losing money is the other thing because there's been so much spent now at this point on advertising and rescheduling and advertising and rescheduling and you know doing it over and over and over again but the costs of the shows are all clicking up so they're going to be 
almost like a lost leader by the time they kind of actually happen. Um, but yeah, look, the uncertainty is the problem here. And that's the big issue. You know, it, it makes it impossible to plan. You can't do anything, you know, with any kind of certainty at all. And very, very difficult and very disheartening as well for, for an industry, you know, that has 30,000 odd people working in it, that, you know, is 3.5 billion into the economy in 2019. You know, it's, it's disheartening and a bit of a kick in the stomach to be kind of told you're last, you know, we'll, um, we're going to get everybody else back. You know, you can get on a plane now, fly to the south of Spain and go to a gig. You can get on a plane, fly to the UK and go to a festival. You can just drive up the road to Belfast and see see Tom Jones bash out Sex Bomb. But like, you can't hear, you know, if you want to go see The Stunning in 34,000 cap Pierce Stadium, 500 people cap. You know, it's it's crazy, really. All right, Shane Dunn, we wish you well in your representations to Catherine Martin. Hopefully you will get the green light uh, to begin running events again. And uh, we might have you back uh, at some stage in the future on Inside Business uh, to see how you're getting on. Shane Dunn, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be looking at the recent spike in North-South trade thanks to Brexit. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Figures from the CSO this week show that North-South trade rose by almost €800 million Euro in the first six months of this year due to Brexit. Stephen Kelly, Chief Executive of Manufacturing in Northern Ireland, joins me now on the line to explain some of the reasons for this spike and also to discuss the issues facing many businesses in the North as a result of the Irish Sea border. Now, Stephen Kelly, thank you for joining us. A large, I think you described it as enormous rise in trade between the North and South in the first six months of this year. And obviously, Brexit uh, will have been a large uh, part of that. But just take us Take us behind the numbers, if you like. The increase was almost 800 million euro year on year over that period. Um, what kind of goods are coming from north to south now that weren't a year ago? Well, we know, Kieran, that uh, those numbers are largely driven by the likes of kind of bulk commodities. So your flowers, your uh, your seeds, your feeds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly talking to manufacturers across Northern Ireland who do trade on the island of Ireland, they're all reporting extremely strong interest, extremely strong demand. Uh, it doesn't matter whether that's engineering items, whether that's food items, whether that's general consumer stuff. Everyone's reporting an incredibly strong uh, demand from Irish customers as they struggle to try to maintain their supply chains uh, that was previously have come from uh, the island of Britain. So we, we all know and we've all forecast that, uh, that the most important thing in trade is market access. Uh, that whenever the UK leaves the EU, that means that the UK becomes a difficult place for businesses right across Europe and particularly Ireland to continue to do trade. And that traders here on the island of Ireland will look for other sources and clearly they haven't waited around. They haven't uh, sat back and waited to see what way this thing would finally roll out. Uh, they only have a business if they have materials. They only have a business if they have a supply chain. So they've got on with it. Uh, they've looked north. And we're benefiting from that. Uh, 77% rise in the first six months of this year uh, across all parts of, of manufacturing uh, is a very strong uh, indication that supply chains have shifted. 
and that Northern Ireland's market access in terms of its goods freely circulating to the EU is a benefit. Yeah, and we hear a lot about the the Northern Ireland, uh, the Irish Sea border between Northern Ireland and Britain, and obviously um, it doesn't sit well with a lot of people um, on both sides of the Irish Sea. So some people might be wondering, why is it that um, a lot of goods are now being rerouted through Northern Ireland when we're hearing so much about the problems of goods going between Northern Ireland and Britain because of this sea border and because of the, the, the protocol? Well, there's really two things in there, I suppose. The, the first is that the, this rise in trade is sales from Northern Irish customers or Northern Irish businesses to Irish customers. Uh, this isn't the rerouting of trade from Britain via Northern Ireland to uh, to Ireland. This is uh, established businesses in the north trading now uh, in a larger number and a greater value with customers in, in Ireland. Uh, there is an element where certainly Irish businesses are using the ports in the north in terms of a route into Ireland as well. And that's largely driven by the fact that there's there's challenges in terms of customs at Dublin Port. Uh, confidence was lost in Dublin Port for many Irish traders in the first number of months of this year. Now the situation is certainly improving there. Uh, and instead they've been using the ports in the north in order to get goods from Britain down into Ireland. Now uh, that process is a two-step process for traders in Northern Ireland. You do a simple movement declaration to start with and that's followed up with supplementary declarations. Irish traders are meant to do the full frontier customs declaration at that point but there's no doubt about it that Irish businesses were using northern ports in the first six months of this year that's diminishing now uh, the demand is is still very strong in those ports but that's largely driven by businesses in Northern Ireland looking to get goods to the great British market as well yeah so is it a blip um, do you think this effect will taper off as as the months go by or do you think this kind of increased trade between north and south will continue well, firstly, we'd say we would hope it would continue because it, it's to our benefit. There's no doubt about that. I actually think that matters will probably get a bit worse before they begin to taper off. The UK hasn't really introduced its full frontier border at this point in time. Uh, yes, there are checks and controls from Britain into Ireland, uh, but effectively there's nothing going the opposite direction at this point in time. Now, that UK or GB border, uh, that inbound border, will begin to be implemented from the 1st of October of this year and then fully implemented by the 1st of January next year. And it's only at that point that, that Britain will really experience what Brexit looks like. Uh, there's been a bit of a, a false narrative at this point in time that things seem to be reasonably well. Unless you're an exporter of food products from Britain into Europe, uh, most businesses haven't really experienced much of a challenge. But that's because they've only got half a border at this point in time. Once that full border comes in, I see much more interest in Northern Irish goods going to Irish customers. I would see uh, that those relationships would be established and we would hope that once those relationships are established that people understand and can continue to, to build in those relationships and what we've seen at the moment, which is a, to our benefit, is continued in the longer term as well. What's the feeling on the ground about the protocol at the minute, Stephen, and where's that whole debate going? So it's an interesting, so on the, on the face of it, you see a 77% rise in trade uh, north to south uh, and you think everything's fine. But actually, that's a bit of a false picture as well. Uh, we've just completed our survey work after six months of the operation of the protocol. And what we're seeing is a drifting away of confidence, actually, in the protocol amongst all manufacturers. And there's very good reason for that. Firstly, more customers, more all businesses in Northern Ireland would trade with the island of Britain in terms of supply chain. They would get raw materials, components, ingredients 
from suppliers in Britain for very good reasons. They share a legal structure, they share a language, they share a, uh, share a currency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's become incredibly difficult. And what we've seen is that a lot of companies have really struggled to, to get their GB suppliers ready and prepared. And an increasing amount of GB suppliers are no longer willing to send stuff to Northern Ireland because they don't want to engage with the processes. All manufacturers in the North trade with Britain, but a smaller amount trade in export markets, a smaller amount trade on the island of Ireland and trade elsewhere in the EU. So whilst all those exporters are, are very buoyant, all those exporters are saying, well, listen, the only thing that matters is the sale, the process to get there, the cost of doing that uh, is important, but the, the most important thing is making that sale. Uh, they're, they're feeling very positive, but those businesses that trade only with, within Northern Ireland or back into GB, they're having a whole world of pain. So what we've noticed in the survey is when we surveyed at the end of month three, uh, there was about 20%, one in five businesses just wanted the protocol scrapped. What we're noticing is a drift in that number. So it's now just over one in four businesses would prefer the protocol to be scrapped altogether. That's because they're experiencing all the pain of the supplementary declarations, all the pain of what's viewed as at-risk goods, all the pain of those tariffs that are being applied, sometimes for nonsense reasons. Uh, so all they have is all the problems and none of the benefits, but our exporters are certainly benefiting right now. What's the solution, Stephen? I mean, if you were sitting down with the negotiators from uh, the British side and from the EU side, what would you be suggesting as a compromise to maybe get through this? Well, both need to move. And, and in typical form, the business community in Northern Ireland hasn't sat uh, just with a bleeding heart and, and complaining about this stuff. We've produced a 12-page paper that's been sent to both the EU and the UK. We've suggested areas that both of them need to look at in terms of flexibilities. We've suggested areas that both of them need to move upon. Uh, and part of that is that uh, the UK has invested a lot of time to, re to achieve all this sovereignty, but it hasn't said what it wants to do with that sovereignty yet. Uh, in our view, it's in the interest of the UK businesses and consumers and the UK as a whole to do a deal on agriculture, for instance, on veterinary, for instance, with the, the EU. Uh, the EU, on the other hand, are saying, listen, you have two choices. You either take all our rules or you have a full third country border. But that's exactly the same choice the UK had in a no-deal scenario. But what we agreed on was that this was a very complex and difficult area. It needed a special protocol and special rules in order to manage the island of Ireland. So what we would like to see is both sides offered more flexibility, both sides being a bit more creative, both sides actually using some of the powers that they have in the interest of consumers and in businesses uh, to ensure that these problems disappear. And that's why we presented that paper. And we would hope that when Europe gets back off holiday now in September, uh, that the UK and the EU sit down, they look at that paper that we've presented, they look at some of the ideas in the UK's command paper, which were very positive, and the areas that they can uh, actually find agreement on. And we make sure that the protocol works in the interests of everybody on the island of Ireland. Stephen, who's to blame for the impasse? Is it Boris Johnson and David Cross or is it the EU side? Well, we're, we're very reluctant to, uh, to pass blame on any individual or any individual side because we do certainly believe that both sides have some journey, uh, some distance left in the journey in terms of making this thing work. No one's to blame for that. I mean, on paper, the protocol works fine. In practice, it comes with a lot of problems that nobody, no one envisaged. And I give examples of uh, EU products uh, who have to pass through Britain in order to have some minor modifications to come to Northern Ireland. Those are coming to Northern Ireland with a tariff applied. 
Uh, GB customers are benefiting from free trade, but Northern Ireland, who are meant to enjoy the free circulation of goods, aren't. Uh, so there's a number of things in the protocol that that I'm, and uh, on that paper, both sides would look at and go, well, listen, everything's fine there. That should work uh, perfectly well. But but what we've experienced over the six months is much more understanding of the practicalities of that. Uh, and we need to make sure that those practicalities are understood by both the UK and the EU and they resolve some of those issues, which was never the intention in the first place of both parties. There is a, a competitive advantage for Northern Ireland in all of this, isn't it? I mean, you're still part of the single market for the circulation of goods. Um, so goods can move freely between Northern Ireland and the rest of the European Union, not just the Republic. Um, and I mean, let's face it, you know, goods can, I know, I know there are more, um, there's more paperwork and, uh, a few issues between trade between uh, Northern Ireland and Britain, but nonetheless, that that trade is still strong. It's still going to continue to be strong uh, going forward. So there is a competitive advantage for certainly for exporters in Northern Ireland. Well, there's no doubt about it. That extra eight hundred million pounds worth of Northern Irish goods that were bought by Irish customers in the first six months of the year, uh, those have largely been at the expense of British uh, suppliers. Those have largely been companies in England, Scotland and Wales that would have previously been uh, supplying customers in Ireland that just can't do that anymore or it's just too expensive or too complex. So they've looked north. So we're, we're benefiting from that. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but this, all, this whole thing comes at a cost as well. So that €800 million Euros of, a, of a rise in sales uh, of Northern Irish goods in the first six months needs to be offset against the additional costs that are being applied to businesses in Northern Ireland. That means... Uh, that they, they struggle for competitiveness. And there's been some analysis done in the last week or so by uh, Dr. Es- Esmond Burney from Ulster University that says that, in his view, somewhere in the region of 650 to £800 million pounds worth of additional cost has been applied to Northern Ireland businesses and consumers as a result of the protocol. So at this point in time, uh, there's a fine balance to be had here. At this point in time, you have some benefit, but you also have some problems. But... We keep going back to the, uh, the the preamble of the protocol, which says that life as we've known it up until that point should largely continue for consumers and businesses in Northern Ireland. And that's not the case at this point in time, but we still uh, cherish that prize. We still uh, believe that that is possible. We still believe that we can benefit uh, economically from the protocol, give us a unique international competitive advantage that we've never had before. Uh, and ensure that consumers and households and businesses in Northern Ireland aren't penalised for that. Stephen, looking at the tea leaves, how are you reading them? Will there be a compromise? I mean, the EU has been saying, well, the deal is the deal, you signed it, um, and we, we go on from here, there'll be no change. Um, and Britain obviously looking for some change. How do you see it playing out? We would think that there would be uh, some pragmatism shown. Uh, the, the reality of Brexit uh, is that the power to have the nightmare of the last five years for governments in right across Europe and in the UK as they debated how the UK would exit, as it debated its withdrawal agreement and its future relationship. The power to, to have that nightmare return every four years is in the hands of people from Northern Ireland. So it's in the interest of the EU and the UK to make sure that, that they do work now to make sure that this protocol works. We have an assembly election coming next year. Uh, that will define whether the people of Northern Ireland wish to maintain uh, the protocol or whether this will have to come back into renegotiation again. And that will be a perpetual uh, problem that both the UK and the EU will have to face unless we make it work now. All right. Stephen Kelly, Chief Executive of Manufacturing Northern Ireland, thank you for joining us. No problem.
Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Shane Dunn and Stephen Kelly. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. The show was produced by Declan Collin with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.